Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, sometimes it's kind of funny how people call the Nordic gods the Viking gods. Because when you think about it, the Vikings really do deserve a lot of the blame for the demise of pre-Christian Nordic spirituality. Would you know more? Stay tuned and find out. A place I'd like to start with on this topic is sort of a passing mention that really, I think, needs a lot more unpacking from my book, where on page four, it reads, Despite their celebrated ferocity, the Norse were eventually converted to Christianity by force through armed invasions, opportunistic Vikings who used the new faith as a tool to dominate other Norse peoples and power-hungry kings who used the cross to cement their rule. Now, that sort of is what I'm going to be getting at in, you know, one sentence in this episode. And there's a lot more that's behind those words than just what I was able to express in that space and within the confines of my first book. However, It is important that we talk about how it was that the rise of the Vikings and everything that goes with that was in many ways directly responsible for the demise of pre-Christian spirituality in Scandinavia. At this point, I'm sure a lot of listeners are going, well, why isn't half the point of heathenry romanticizing Vikings and stuff? Well, for me and a lot of other people, no. But also, as any heathen can tell you, the Vikings and the stuff associated with them was only one part of life for these peoples in this time and place. And it was not the catch-all summary of everything there was and ever could be to their existence. Interrogating the relationship between Vikings, and broader Nordic society reveals a lot more about how their spiritual practices were changing 
how the structure of their society was developing during this time of incredible upheaval. And it also opens modern heathens up to a bigger conversation that I think we need to be having. Whether you see yourself as a reconstructionist, a revivalist, or some other form of heathen, it is sort of essential that we have a good answer for why did these historical practices end, and an answer that goes beyond just, well, here's what we know from what happened in history. And what I mean by that is a solution to the problem of how did this die out in the first place, and what can we do to make our modern practice, regardless of what method it is you are using, something that will not fall prey to those same problems. I will lay this case out in four parts. The first is discussing what we know from historical research on the origins of the Vikings, who they were, and what this means for Scandinavian society at the time. I will then explore the concept which Neil Price has introduced to this conversation of hydrarchy, which is a broader term from maritime history that I'll get into more that is both interesting for explaining how this particular phenomenon developed and also offers potential insights for how the modern heathen community kind of tends to function, if unintentionally. I'll then get into the question of state formation, because, you know, this extremely violent process that's happening during this period of raiding, pillaging, and all of that, all of these factors are necessary for explaining why the Vikings, whose entry into the historical record begins with assaulting symbols and places of Christian worship and Christian power, eventually became the most effective conveyors of Christianity into their former homelands. From there, I'll then get into what played out historically, with examples of individuals who could be described as both Vikings and Christians, whose ambitions and desire for power made them critical figures in cementing the place of Christianity in medieval Scandinavia. I'll then end things on what are some things that we can learn from all of this? What is there in the conversion process that can help us avoid repeating history? So all of that said, let's take some rose-colored glasses and stomp them into the pavement. Our story starts with the origin of the Vikings. Now, this is a topic that has undergone a lot of change, debate, and discussion since it first begins with really the origin of the concept of the Vikings in Victorian England. Yeah, you heard that right. As far as the historical record is concerned, the idea of referring to the like 250-so-year time span from the raid of Lindisfarne in 793 to the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066 as the Viking Age, was not actually a thing during that period. 
The term Viking does show up, particularly in Nordic language source materials, but for the most part, when you read different Christian chronicles, they tend to refer to the raiders as generically Danes or using some other descriptor like the Northmen. There's even one particular prayer that tends to make the rounds in Viking-oriented groups, discussion spaces, as well as heathen spaces that I'm sure a lot of folks have heard that goes something like, Afurore Normanorum Libera Nos Domine, which translated from Latin means, from the fury of the Northmen, may God deliver us, which supposedly was a prayer that made the rounds during this period, but there is no actual written source that says this was a thing or that this particular prayer had entered any like set litany or practice. The closest there is to this prayer that actually existed in period is uh, from a dedication to St. Menard, which reads, Summa pia gratia nostra concer Rvando corpora et custodie de gente fera normanica nos libera que nostra vastet Deus regna, which means our highest and holiest grace protects us and ours God from the wild race of Norwegians, which destroys our kingdoms. Such appeals are not that unusual in medieval Christianity, especially since, you know, we are talking a time period that had fairly endemic low-level warfare at pretty much all times, so it makes sense for people to be praying for deliverance from whoever the people are that are currently coming after you. But this notion of a Viking age began as a product of Victorian antiquarians and scholars looking backwards at the period and applying a label to it. Now, this has since stuck because, historiographically speaking, there is still good reason to set this time period apart because it is unique in that you had widespread raiding, migration, and, and other social upheaval across Europe as a result of these raids and the growth of the hydrarchy which developed in the North Sea during this time period. This is all important to mention because our first explanations that exist in the historical record for why this period began starts with the Victorians saying, one day, for reasons totally not apparent to the poor innocent Christians living in Anglo-Saxon England, a bunch of bloodthirsty pagans sailed across the sea and sacked a church. Loaded in this explanation are a lot of bad assumptions, like, for example, that the Nordic peoples were some kind of isolated group of savage people who were not in contact with the broader world around them, that this was some kind of assault from beyond the bounds of civilization by a previously unknown group striking for unfathomable reasons. That soon swelled as their appetites for gold and land were tempted and then grew thanks to the success of these raids. This whole thing then, you know, takes a really racist turn when you look at Victorian stuff because, you know, again, we are talking 19th century Victorian scholarship. So, yeah, it's going to get racist really quickly. Also, like, sexist in its own special way. But... 
leaving that aside for a minute. This then gets applied by Victorians to say, well, clearly we, as the English, are descendants of these bold and mighty pioneers, and we have inherited their exploratory and conquering spirit. So therefore, it's only right that the sun shall never set on the British Empire, and we go and do awful things on pretty much every continent other than Antarctica and keep rule Britannia playing at 11 as long as we possibly can. Nothing like being able to go, oh, it's not because we were being greedy or wanted to acquire those resources or were involved in some kind of pissing match with another power in the region. It's because of our Viking heritage. This also gets picked up by other folks like German ultranationalists with predictable bad consequences, like two world wars and some genocide along the way. It's safe to say this explanation and the tropes that are associated with it are hella problematic. And anyone whose description of the Nordic peoples from this time that leans heavily into this stuff is probably either badly misinformed or they're peddling some borderline fascist propaganda, which, you know, is not really much of a stretch because literally that's what happened with this line of reasoning in multiple different ways. This, by the way, is before I start getting into the really off-the-wall shit like Ultima Thule and the Atlantean hypothesis and all kinds of other stuff about like the great Aryan race. And yeah, this this rabbit hole gets really weird and really funky. I'm probably going to do a whole episode about it at some point just because it's so incredibly off-the-wall and is something that we really need to unpack a bit more. But, you know, leaving all that aside, this stuff is both, you know, really problematic and gets really strange in a bad way pretty quick. It's also pretty solidly wrong on all counts. The current historical consensus for why the Viking period, such as it is, began is complex, consisting of many different related interlocking causes. First, however, it's important to shoot some nonsense down right out the gate, which is, you know, the implicit idea in the Victorian and related narratives that the Scandinavian peoples were beyond the edges of civilization or anything like that. And we know from material evidence that was simply not true. There is all kinds of evidence of the Nordic peoples trading with the Roman Empire and the client states of the Roman Empire, things like Swedish iron showing up within the boundaries of the Roman Empire during its heyday and later periods. There is evidence from graves in Sweden of archaeological goods that are clearly from the Indian subcontinent and either had to be traded through intermediaries or probably transported all the way there by the individual who had it and all kinds of other stuff that shows well before the Viking Age began, the Nordic peoples were fairly integrated into the fringes of the European world. They certainly weren't 
the center of uh, medieval and late Roman Europe, but they were definitely like plugged into this broader world. They probably would have been somewhat familiar with what was going on at points further south and west, even if, you know, the way that the story and the details were conveyed may not have been completely right. I mean, these are cultures where people sufficiently understood the value and significance of Roman currency for it to be worth hoarding as a grave good. We also know goods like wine were traded as far north as what would be modern-day Sweden. Where this starts to change is beginning with a particular phenomenon referred to by Neil Price, which was a major volcanic eruption that happened at some point around 543 some point in the 540s, that had a significant impact on the climate worldwide. Now, this eruption is not attested to directly anywhere by historical sources, but what is described in places like the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, in different parts of South Asia and other regions of the world, was a darkening of the sky that Particularly in Byzantine sources, they describe how even at high noon, the day was still dark and it was a year effectively without spring, where you had widespread crop failures, famine, and all kinds of other just absolute world shattering upheaval that comes from, you know, when the sun gets dimmed by volcanic ash on a massive scale. This eruption is uh, archaeologically attested to by the analysis of old tree rings, as well as by comparing different written sources from different parts of the world that are describing more or less the same thing, that there was this cataclysmic period during the mid-6th century that fundamentally altered life for peoples around the world that looks like basically a Krakatoa, but probably larger scale eruption occurred. This, according to Neil Price, is what set the stage for the rise of what he calls hall-based culture and other significant shifts in Nordic society that happen over the course of the 600s and 700s. There are also arguments by other scholars. This all dovetails really well with other accepted arguments by scholars like Robert Ferguson and Elsa Rosedahl, who point to surviving source material and archaeological evidence that shows a likely driver of the rise of raiding and what would be described as the Viking culture was due to food shortages and scarcity in Scandinavia, something that would coincide with this kind of long period. And there's even specific references by Robert Ferguson to uh, what could be described as almost like a starvation lottery on the island of Gotland in the Baltic, where the peoples living there basically drew lots to see who could stay and who would have to basically jump in a boat and try their luck somewhere else because the harvest was simply that bad. There is also speculation, though it is somewhat hard to prove due to the perishable nature of the materials involved, that this period was about when the first sails were invented by the Nordic peoples, or at least adopted in a fashion that worked well with their existing maritime technologies. Also related to that is what's often referred to as the iron plow theory, which argues the development of a new 
form of iron plow which could dig deeper and break further ground further north in uh, the nordic regions of scandinavia saw more intense cultivation of the land competition over arable land and people who were either losing out or coming up empty who were looking for new opportunities all of this of course would have led to more population growth and population pressures as more land under tilling means more crops that feeds more people one particularly interesting theory that's worth thinking about a bit, not necessarily taking too far, but at least considering, is one advanced by Robert Ferguson, who argues that one likely cause of the escalating violence that would consume the North Sea world in what's referred to as the Viking Age could be the expansion and religious policies of the Frankish Emperor Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne, for those who are not familiar, was a basically a warlord operating in the style of a late Roman official who was a descendant of the rulers of what was called Francia, the kingdom of the Franks. Now, Charlemagne, based on surviving sources, was able to effectively unify the realm under his rule, expand Frankish power into what is now like modern day Catalonia and into the Rhineland in Germany. And along the way was a major sponsor and supporter of the Roman Catholic Church. Nothing better cemented this alliance than when the Pope crowned Charlemagne the first emperor of the Romans on Christmas Day in the early 800s. Charlemagne, in turn, protected the papacy and their claims over what was referred to as the Papal States, which was Rome and the surrounding regions near the city. When it came to his eastern borders, facing the lands that make up what is modern-day Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands, Charlemagne adopted a policy of conversion or destruction, for lack of a better way to put it. The first example of this policy was in what were referred to as the Saxon Wars, a series of conflicts fought over the course of several decades between the Frankish forces under Charlemagne and a Germanic group living in what is the Rhineland today, who were known as the Saxons. And yes, these guys are related to the Saxons who went to England. Um, that's a whole other question. And this war was pretty brutal, even by the standards of the period. The leader of the Saxons, Wittekind, fought a prolonged and dedicated guerrilla campaign against the Franks and often was forced to flee to nearby Denmark and seek shelter because, you know, he had intermarried with the developing Danish monarchy. Eventually, Charlemagne would gain victory, and one of the events that would sort of celebrate and demonstrate his policy to other non-Christian groups in the region was an event known as the Bloody Verdict of Verdun. The Verdict of Verdun was a judgment that Charlemagne rendered on a group of some three or four thousand, depending on source, captured Saxon nobles who were forced to convert to Christianity and accept baptism. Then, after they had taken the cross, every single one of them was promptly executed by Charlemagne's soldiers. The emperor's chroniclers 
rather approvingly recorded that the River Verdun ran red with blood for weeks after. Charlemagne then sent demands to the rulers of what is now today Bavaria and other major tribal warlords, giving them a simple offer. Convert and accept my status as the supreme Christian monarch, or we're going to give you some of this. Now, according to Robert Ferguson, because we know these groups in Scandinavia were in contact with, trading with, and had relationships with these peoples, like, for example, the intermarriage between Wittekind's family and the early kings of Denmark, written sources even go so far as to claim that the Danish king Gudfred began construction of a series of defensive fortifications called the Danewerk because of fear of Frankish invasion. Now, it would be oversimplifying things to say the Viking Age began because Charlemagne was doing some pretty brutal religious and political imperialism nearby, but, you know, it does help explain some of the tendencies, like the particular violence that was dished out to sites of Christian worship, the targeting of sites of Christian worship as both soft targets that had a lot of goods of value, as well as being symbols of this new rising power. Like, it is again, you know, I'm not claiming, and I know that Ferguson is not claiming that there is a direct one-to-one Charlemagne went around killing a bunch of people, so the Viking Age began in retaliation kind of relationship. But it would not be unreasonable to argue that this was likely a motivating factor for a lot of the people who took to sail and started raiding. That to them, it wasn't just a question of, well, there's gold over there and there's not enough food to go around and we need to go out and take some risks to do this stuff. There was also a very real example of a major power exerting their military might to destroy peoples who they had trading political and possibly even familial relations with in some cases and were clearly doing a different thing than the Christians of earlier periods had. It's important to remember that the other side of that coin of that the Nordic peoples were in contact with and enmeshed with the rest of Europe for hundreds of years, at least by this point, is they also probably would have been somewhat aware of Christianity as a thing. And Christian missionaries had been crossing the Rhine for 300, 400 years by the time the raid at Lindisfarne happens. So it's not like Christianity even was necessarily a new and strange thing to them. But the thing Charlemagne was doing was new and different compared to previous Frankish rulers and compared to what was sort of the previous pattern of Christianity within these parts of Europe that lay beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire. There was also significant political upheaval happening in Scandinavia, about the same time as when Charlemagne is doing some, you know, light crimes against humanity, you have a gentleman by the name of King Harald Finehair, who was a Norwegian warlord who swore that he would not comb his hair until he had successfully brought all of Norway under his rule. 
And he began doing this in the late 700s, early 800s. And as he went about basically asserting his dominance by military force, he seized lands from people who resisted him and redistributed them to his followers. This, you know, disinheritance, along with the general upheaval that comes from a period of prolonged warfare, now meant you had a lot of people who were on the outs in a significant chunk of Scandinavia and had strong material motivations to go out and get land or stuff and otherwise, you know, make a living for themselves in some way or another, who also had recent military experience. No matter how you slice it, this period was developing an increasingly volatile cocktail that was ready to blow. And these raids exploded onto the historical stage just as you had the highly centralized Frankish kingdom of Charlemagne beginning to fragment and as Anglo-Saxon England was divided into seven competing kingdoms who could not effectively mount a unified a unified defense against what would soon be coming from across the North Sea. This takes the story to the North Sea hierarchy that the Vikings made. I want to start first with the term hierarchy, which to my knowledge was first applied for describing this world by Neil Price in Children of Ash and Elm. Hydrarchy is any system or situation where you have a culture that is continuously self-replicating, a consistent model of organization that endures without the support of states or other similar related institutions. Hydrarchy is largely decentralized, but often has different nodes that serve as points of concentration and, you could say, organization and accumulation within a hierarchical society. Essentially, what this means is the hierarchical space is capable of creating, in this case, Viking raiding bands because there is a population there is a set of networks and points of concentration that make it possible for these groups to come together, for ambitious leaders to rally bands of followers, and the knowledge to build the necessary boats, as well as employ the right warfighting techniques to obtain victory. All of which is further facilitated by a larger population of, you could say, more or less unattached, but militarily and, most importantly, nautically experienced individuals. By the way, when I'm saying hierarchy, I want to emphasize that I'm not saying it uh, hydra as in, like, say, hydropower or something. I'm saying hydra as in the mythical creature. And that's because that's where this term's name comes from. It was first proposed by maritime historians Peter Linbaugh and Marcus Redeker in their book, The Many-Headed Hydra, where they describe this model and lay it out for explaining the phenomenon of piracy in the Caribbean during the late 
17th and early 18th centuries. Marcus Redeker in particular goes into heavy detail on the relationships and networks between different pirate crews, pirate captains, and how members of some crews would go on to become leaders of new crews, thus creating this sort of self-replicating phenomenon happening in a world where mutinous sailors, ships, and places to dock them were readily available. The golden age of piracy also, not unlike the beginnings of the Viking Age, was happening in the wake of a period of prolonged colonial warfare, which now left large numbers of uh, sailors with military experience a lot of free time on their hands and a desire to do something other than go back to being a merchant sailor. Not unlike King Harold's unification and creation of the Kingdom of Norway or Charlemagne's expansion in the continent. This essentially means that you have something of a social and cultural ecosystem that is nourishing the practice of raiding and eventually large-scale conquest and colonization. A big part of what made this self-perpetuation possible for the Vikings, especially in comparison to the Pirates of the Caribbean, was the scale of wealth they were able to amass. Now, everyone knows about, you know, the taking of gold and silver and other treasures from the monasteries and churches of Europe. And there are some historians who have even argued that the Vikings taking these resources and then turning them into a form of liquid capital through use in trade created, you know, sort of the beginnings of a cash economy in Europe. Of course, this is something that is debatable. But what was much more important and much more central, which particularly Neil Price emphasizes in Children of Ash and Elm, was the trafficking of human beings. Thraldom, which was the form of slavery practiced by the Nordic peoples in this time, was not new when the first raids across the North Sea and expeditions along the river systems of Russia began. There were two ways that people became thralls. First was as captives in war, which was a fairly common tendency when you look at systems of slavery historically around the world, and as a form of restitution through labor in recompense for crimes or injuries done to another person. Thraldom was not necessarily an inherited condition in the way that other forms of slavery, particularly chattel slavery in the Americas, tend to be. There are also examples of thralls buying their way into freedom in a way that's not unlike some cases in Roman and Mediterranean slavery during the time of the Roman Empire. And folks who did that were expected to be fully integrated into the particular society that they were a part of. There is even something of a sense that a person who rebels against being taken as a captive and taking vengeance on their captors is justified, as is depicted in the saga of Voland. But that said, this was nevertheless a pretty brutal institution. Sexual violence against anyone who is considered to be your human property was protected in law, as were other forms of violence, and even possibly, depending on circumstances, just outright summary execution. Um, just because it was possible for, at the most extreme end, we have descriptions from uh, 
Ibn Fadlan's account of the Rus, of a woman whose captor had died and she was to be sacrificed for the funeral. And content warning for, you know, violence, sexual assault, and other fun things. The slave girl who gives herself to be burned with him in these ten days drinks and indulges in pleasure. She decks her head and her person with all sorts of ornaments and fine dress, and so arrayed gives herself to the men. When a great personage dies, the people of his family ask his young woman and male slaves, who among you will die with him? One answers, I. Once he or she has said that, the thing is obligatory. There is no backing out of it, usually as one of the girl slaves who does this. There's more, and there's no question that Ibn Fadlan was probably exaggerating to some extent, as was a tendency in similar accounts from this time period. But, you know, nonetheless, this is pretty grim stuff and shows a serious dehumanization of people taken into thraldom. And as the Viking Age grew, as the scale of conflict and raiding grew, so did the scale of enslavement, forced relocation of peoples, raids all throughout what would be modern-day Russia, and the accumulation of wealth that comes from that. Slavery was inseparable from this world of smashed churches and looted monasteries. The wealth and resources that could be accumulated from facilitating this trade was the foundation of many of the most celebrated of the later Viking leaders. People like Olaf Tryggvason, Harald Hardrada, and many others got their start going a Viking, and, you know, based on the evidence of the scale of this trade, a lot of that would have involved taking people captive and selling them into slave markets bound for destinations throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East. This wealth is what made it possible for men like these to then recruit followers from throughout this Viking world, from within this hierarchy, who could be motivated by anything from loot to promises of land and power or even just an opportunity to engage in more violence and seizure of wealth before going on to the next expedition. This is where the armies and the power for building the early modern Scandinavian states, as well as bringing Christianity, would come from. The large-scale movement of trafficked human beings and the scale of thraldom, both within Nordic parts of Scandinavia and in terms of export, for lack of a better term, brought a lot of people into the society who either were Christian or had contact with Christianity or were otherwise sympathetic to different elements of the message of Christianity as a leveling force that forgives all. A pattern which, by the way, is sort of similar to how some of the earlier adherents of Christianity and the Roman Empire were enslaved people. Certain more patriarchal practices, which likely became exaggerated as the period wore on and the demands of an increasingly masculine-dominated military world pressed on the rest of society, 
such as the lack of say that women had in their choice of partners within, you know, more elite marriages, the systemic infanticide of female infants, and other similar tendencies meant that some of the first converts within the Nordic regions were more influential women within Nordic society. In short, some of the worst tendencies of this society, which became exacerbated by the prolonged violence and accumulation of wealth that came with the Viking period, had become points of spiritual friction that also were somewhat in conflict with other elements of Nordic society, which at times could be more egalitarian. The very thing that had sustained the Viking world was also the thing that was central to the consolidation of Christian monarchy in the Nordic regions of Scandinavia. What you've got, because of all this concentration of wealth and military power, is this growing class of a military aristocracy, not unlike what happened in Europe a few centuries prior during the waning days of the western half of the Roman Empire. The likely reasons for these different successful Viking warlords to convert to Christianity are generally seen as some combination of wealth, power, and probably also some genuine changes of heart in terms of their understanding of spirituality. I'm saying likely because the source materials we have, care of you know the joys of anything related to medieval history, are largely produced well after the deaths of the people that they're describing. And while, for example, in the case of the Heimskringla, they seem to be referring to older primary sources, we do not actually have these other sources to refer to. In any case, a lot of these sources were also filtered through the goals, desires, and tastes of the, by the time of Snorri writing the Heimskringla, elite Christian warrior aristocracy of the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Any predecessors they would have been consulting from would have also likely been writing for a similar audience. And this is before we get into the further complicating factor of uh, the whole genre of medieval hagiography, which is, you know, the stories of saints' lives and the lives of other significant Christians who advanced the cause of the faith in some way or another, and how particularly when you're talking saints' lives, they tend to be somewhat formulaic and follow consistent patterns that fit within the literary tropes of the times when those particular hagiographies are produced and have limited value in terms of, you know, being an accurate or genuine depiction of the lives of the individuals they describe. We do have some outside, in the sense of not from the Nordic culture's primary sources, such as the account of Ibn Fadlan describing the Rus, which I quoted earlier, Adam of Bremen's accounts of missionary efforts into Sweden, and the Wita Lebwini, which describes the missionary Lebwin and his interactions with the Saxon peoples in the Rhineland prior to Frankish conquest. 
Now, certainly there were a lot of material benefits to conversion and siding with the new religion. Things like access to clergy who knew how to read and write and had experience at doing bureaucratic stuff, which is, you know, kind of necessary if you want to run any kind of even vaguely centralized power structure like establishing a medieval monarchy. And also, very importantly, based on what Charlemagne did in Bavaria and other parts of Germany following the destruction he visited on the Saxon peoples, the guarantee that other Christian monarchs would not unjustly make war upon them and people within their territories and generally respect the kingdoms of their fellow Christian rulers. In other words, Converting to Christianity could be seen from, you know, if you take the most self-serving and materially minded interpretation as a great way to consolidate your position, establish legitimacy, get some easy allies, also probably access to trade, and all kinds of other stuff that means all you really have to do then is deal with your internal enemies and consolidate your power at home. And then maybe, you know, go out and conquer some neighbors or something like that because that's what these guys were always doing like that's what happens when the people in charge are people whose power comes from the war there was also something of a political aspect to this in that going along with christian ideas of monarchy meant that you as the king were ordained by god in some way or another to rule over this land in his name whereas in the Nordic societies that had existed, there was a whole collection of different regional assemblies referred to as tings in Scandinavia that were to varying degrees somewhat directly democratic bodies that resolved disputes, acted as something of a law court, and also passed legislation for their particular communities. Although usually this legislation was things along the lines of the difference between justifiable killing and self-defense versus murder or if that community was going to be going to war with their neighbors or going raiding you know stuff like that so along with these you know international relations material economic and institutional support that conversion could give it also can give you a handy justification for taking the rod to these different somewhat unruly at times ungovernable bodies that did in some cases legitimately overthrow and kill kings. It would, however, be going a little far to say that this was purely based on opportunism and ambition, mostly because we know from a handful of surviving sources showing this question of spirituality was still a deeply personal matter that posed serious challenges to the individual. And we get this more because of stuff that survives of the reverse, such as, for example, the Phrygian king Radbod, who was courted by Christian missionaries and, according to Christian chronicles, was at the edge of baptism when he stopped and said, now, if I do this and I die, will any of my ancestors be in heaven to meet me? And they said, no, they'll be in hell because they did not accept baptism. They did not accept Jesus. To which the king replied, then I'd rather be in hell with my ancestors than alone in heaven. We also have the example of Leif Erikson, who was a Christian missionary, and his, as far as we know, lifelong heathen father, Eric the Red. 
these tendencies towards abuse of power, the brutality visited on thralls, particular nastiness of uh, patriarchal attitudes in Nordic Scandinavia, all could have easily been points of friction for anyone who was raised in this society and was questioning elements of the society. Regardless, we do know from surviving evidence that the wealth these particular raiders, warlords, and oftentimes mercenaries accumulated gave them the means to gather their own personal armies and establish themselves as competitors for power. This is what fuels the violence that escalates within Scandinavia itself during the later part of the Viking Age, leading up to the eventual conversion of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Now, some of this was external, such as the invasion by Holy Roman Emperor Otto I of the heathen kingdom of Denmark and the forcible conversion of that king to Christianity. But most of the rest was brought about and inflicted by peoples living in the Nordic regions who had converted to one side or the other and were looking to establish and expand their power. In the case of Norway, you have Olaf Tryggvason, who imposed himself by force and was eventually overthrown by a coalition of his enemies from Norway, as well as nearby Sweden and other parts of the North Sea world. His successor, St. Olaf, who would actually officially convert Norway to Christianity, would be killed by a force of largely non-noble local Norwegians who opposed his efforts to bring the new faith to the region. Such violence would certainly have been, at least in the back of everybody's minds, in Iceland when the Commonwealth of Iceland voted through their all thing in the year 1000 to accept a nominal conversion of the island to Christianity with protections for personal practice by people who still adhered to the old custom. And to be clear, there was also quite a bit of violence coming from the side of those who were bringing about conversion, as well as people who were just looking to build their wealth and power. Because at this point, these different thrones and states had become assets to be fought over, and they were fought over frequently by Christian lords, who both visited out some pretty brutal punishments on people who refused to convert and you know we're talking descriptions of things like people having hot coals poured over their bellies um and all kinds of other equally creative ways to kill people and this is stuff that survives in christian sources so you know i want to put out there that this isn't so much them confessing to bad things they did as bragging about it Laws were also passed, delivering some pretty harsh punishments for people who engaged in any of the old practices, such as sitting out on mounds or sitting other tr under trees and singing spell songs, and all kinds of other actively coercive measures meant to stamp out any kind of organized practice. It's also worth mentioning this was coming from, you know, people that 
you'll see in uh, you know more generic viking media celebrated as great and glorious warriors like people like harold hardrada the man who would be the so-called last viking king who would be killed at the battle of stanford bridge in 1066 canute the great of denmark who ruled over the kingdoms of norway denmark and much of the dane law in england and was said to be so arrogant as to attempt to hold back the tide and many others who get held up as sort of look at these great manly viking warriors and all of these were very firmly christian men and at this point they weren't so much doing like you know daring raids across the north sea or anything like that but were amassing armies and basically playing chess with people's lives and bringing the disruption and destruction that comes with medieval warfare in the name of well i think i should be king of this conversion would also see the beginning of a centuries-long campaign by the Swedish and Norwegian states to colonize, suppress, and otherwise displace the Sami peoples from the northern regions of Sweden and Norway. And this, by the way, was a marked shift from before conversion, where there were documented cases of Nordic peoples fighting to keep Christian missionaries away from Sami groups because of pre-existing connections between the two, and even cases of prominent leaders within Nordic society who claimed partial Sami ancestry and actively intermarried with Sami mystics. It's a really pretty serious about-face, and also something that makes a certain amount of sense of now that you've finish crushing your enemies at home and redistributing property to your supporters, you need something to do and somewhere to expand. So what can we learn from this twilight of the old practice? There's a lot that's going on in this story that makes it difficult to say that there is just one nice, easy, glib answer to this question. Some of why this extended period of violence that ultimately culminated in the conversion of these peoples was somewhat justified within the context. But what was done with it and where it went ultimately would undo any possibly justifiable reasons for people to jump into longships and go raiding across the North Sea beginning in the ninth century. What makes this especially perplexing is it seems that some of the more egalitarian spirit, at least from what we can tell loosely, that existed in Nordic societies was in some ways carried over into these raiding bands. Two potential examples of this, although again, you know, we got to take this with a grain of salt because we have very limited source material here, is first from the account of Rollo, who became the first Duke of Normandy. In the missionary's account, one of the questions that was asked of Rollo and the Normans was, who among you would be the chief? And he replied, each man is chief in his own right. And similar sentiments are expressed in the probably a bit more aspirational and fictional than necessarily historical saga of the Jomsvikings, and quite a few other places. 
This also shares some interesting historical parallels to how many of the pirate ships of the Golden Age of Piracy were run by a sort of crude, rough form of direct democracy, often in defiance of the incredibly hierarchical nature of merchant shipping, something that kind of parallels the new world that was being created beginning with people with like King Harold Finehair and his forcible unification of norway it's certainly also present in iceland where the peoples who settled in iceland explicitly organized themselves based on this kind of mass popular assembly model and this would endure well after conversion until the island was subsumed by the kingdom of norway in the 1200s yet these same peoples who were in some ways engaging in some interesting experiments about how to live and how to organize society were escalating one of the largest periods of a sustained slave trade within pre-modern history. And much of the wealth that was accumulated through this would go on to make the kind of warlordism and military monarchy first developed by groups like the Franks in the dying days of the Roman Empire into Scandinavia with all the consequences that had. What even more complicates this story is how much survived in folklore. Even though the, you could say, above-ground forms of practice and memory and myth were thoroughly suppressed, you still had folklore around the Vitir, and around the different gods that endured long after conversion, including things like surviving mystical practices, like Icelandic Galdrastafir. If there is any clear takeaway from this, it's that those things which serve the needs of people can be some of the most enduring ideas and practices in human history while those things that become too bound up in the demands of power and authority can frequently be destroyed by that same power and authority which they once supported and benefited from. We're also, in many ways, living what happens when a major religious force in society has become nothing more than a vessel for greed and power. Just take a look at the increasingly aggressive Christian nationalist movement in the United States, or Hungary, or Poland. If the goal of the modern heathen movement is to endure and thrive, then we should learn from both why historical pre-Christian Nordic practice failed and everything that has happened in the history of religion since. When power and authority are put ahead of people, things tend to go very badly. So, that is the episode. And I know that one was quite a bit of a ride, so thank you for listening. And no matter where you are, good luck out there. This has been Ryan Smith at The Wayward Wanderer. If you want to find out more about Radical Heathen Practice, head on over to onblackwings.com, where you can find articles, classes, resources, and more. This podcast was created and produced by Ryan Smith.
Thanks for listening.